Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Build Show podcast. This is my opportunity to go a little deep on some nerdy topics, usually with a builder friend, not always, but today I have one of my oldest builder friends, Tim Hill. If you don't know Tim, Tim is my VP of construction. We've been building together for about 10 years now, but Tim's wisdom and experience goes 30 years deeper than that. Uh, This is his 40th or so year of construction. I've been building for 26 years now this year. And so today's topic is framing, how framing has evolved and changed just in our decades of experience. And we're going to talk about two sides of framing, both the the labor side, the framers that we've used over the years and our current frame carpenter, and then also a little bit of the lumber and how that's changed. And hopefully uh, this isn't just a walk down memory lane, but there might be some good lessons learned for you uh, in your next build, your next framing job. Today's build show from the Rockwell Studios in Austin, Texas, sponsored by our friends at Builders First Source. Let's get going. Okay, Tim, our topic is framing. Now, you started framing, or actually you didn't start as a framer, but you were in the building business, and you were around framed houses in the 70s, right, when you got your start in this business? Yeah, in 1979, I worked for a local volume or track builder as we call him and uh who was it you mind me telling haskell griffin okay yeah he was bought out by fox and jacobs which is eventually became syntax i think but anyway it's long story yeah we we um so 70s houses if if i could put my uh my mind's uh imagination to work walk me through a 70s framed house that you walked into in 1979 well somewhat traditionally framed walls mm-hmm. uh, two by fours and track homes they were two by fours on 24 inch centers oh interesting you know, custom homes they were 16 inch centers mm-hmm. um and we use solid dimensional lumber for all ceiling joists for all headers for all rafters bracing everything dimensional mm-hmm. lumber uh plywood was not really used for anything other than like maybe some attic decking for storage or maybe sandwiched in between dimensional lumber for headers interesting so no sheathing on those houses how were you getting your shear value on this well we would either let in or as they say notch in one by four diagonally across you know the corners of the house mm-hmm. wherever there was an outside corner and, and then we'd cover them with just you know 15 or 30 pound felt paper and that was it that wow. was the wall section that was quick yeah now when they when they did that one by four lead embracing were they actually using a chisel to uh to let that in or were they cutting that notch with a with a circular saw and then knocking it out with their hammer they were generally uh, cutting with a, a circular saw and knocking it out with a hammer okay yeah. so there it was not super careful in terms no. of making no. that that framing no. No. connection. I've, I've remodeled houses back that were built in the early 20th century, and I can tell you that there's a big difference in the way framers used to do it. They were true carpenters. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any difference between a framing carpenter and a finished carpenter that day. They were all the same. Yep. And, you know, they used hand tools. There weren't any real electric tools, so everything was uh, hand-sawn, hand-chiseled, you know, hand-marked. And traditionally, what they did is on the back of some of the trim material, they would sign their signature. Just they were so proud of their work. That's really cool. When do you think that changed that we moved more towards uh, carpentry as a uh, frame carpentry specialty? Well, I think after World War II, uh, the housing demand was so great that houses became almost modular. You know, you could buy kit homes Mm -hmm. and, and... all the components were already pre-measured, pre-cut for you. Um, 
And then uh, as subdivisions began to be developed, uh, the need for trades, it would just repeat one right after the other after the other and do cookie cutter homes um, sort of define what framing was and how they could get one done as quickly as they could using the same practices over and over again. Same crew, same men, right? over and over. Now, was this uh, in this in that 79 era, talk to me about trusses and talk to me about compressors and nail guns. Were you seeing either of those on the job yet? Yeah, we did have roof trusses. That was the first thing to show up. Um, you know, just two by fours uh, designed by a truss engineer and manufacturing a truss mill. Um, very simple roofs, not complex. They're not a lot of dormers, not a lot of, uh, hips. Most of them were just gable in. They, they could do hips, but there was some fill in dimensional lumber in there to, to join the two. Yeah. Uh, but floor trusses really didn't become popular until in this market until the early eighties. And by floor trusses, what you mean, just to clarify is two by four floor trusses right. where you've got an open web. It kind of looks like a bridge, uh, you know, the bottom of the bridge where you've got a two by four, a lot of openness. Uh, I Joyce came out another decade or two after that, right? That's right. That's right. And then how about nail guns? Were, were your carpenters in the seventies using pneumatic nail guns or was that still all hand nailed at that? No, point? we were, we had, Traditional nail guns is not very much different than we have them today. I think those sort of became popular in the mid-70s, maybe early to mid-70s, pneumatic nail guns. Yeah, and then the guys stopped using hand nails at that point, except for uh, a few times during yeah. the course of the day. Now, I will say, uh, as uh, compared to today, uh, we didn't use any screws. There, there, screws were not even known in the residential construction yeah. industry. I, I can't think of any application we had for them. Whereas today we use them quite a bit. Screws are some type of lag bolt a lot. Yeah, which is interesting because screws are super helpful. But interestingly enough, I did a video not too long ago with Whit um, Smith, a structural engineer we work with a lot, who basically said, look, you know, screws are great and all, but typically unless you're buying a structural screw, they're not a good structural connector. Uh, and so I think that there is a little bit of a misconception among more, you know, a younger generation of both builders and carpenters that you can replace any nail with the screw. And that's not really the case. No, no. Just there are decking screws that are mainly meant for attaching decking mm -hmm. material. But structural screws like timber locks, for example, those are specifically designed to hold structural members together. And they have to be installed in a certain way as, to, as specified by the manufacturer or the engineer. Uh, and that's a different animal. Yeah, and they yeah. usually have a really thick uh, shank that uh, is able to resist their shear forces and all right. those other things. So it's not the same as a deck screw, that's right. for sure. Right. Now, when you moved from the 70s to the 80s uh, and maybe from the 80s to the 90s, when did you start seeing uh, solid sheathing become more common practice or even start seeing it at all? Yeah, by the mid-80s, uh, it had become common practice to use uh, half-inch plywood uh, and then later OSB uh, as a structural sheathing component. And um, in more upscale homes, they only used the sheathing at the corners, and then they used typically a half-inch foam board or some type of insulation in the field mm -hmm. because the, the Dow and the Owens Corning, those products began to come out. I think... Initially, we had foil back poly ISO, mm -hmm. and that was sort of an exterior sheathing that we used. But 
from a structural standpoint, um, we started just using the corner bracing as the four by eight sheets of plywood. It's so interesting. I did, I did a uh, webinar yesterday that was sponsored by Atlas Poly ISO. And uh, as I was kind of prepping for that, and the point of the webinar was, look, there are other options besides OSB sheathing. You know, you could um, you could use lead embracing and you could use Simpson straps. There's other things you could do for, for sheer value. And then consider poly ISO as your, as your sheathing and potentially even your WRB. But I was curious, and I honestly, I haven't, and I knew the lumber was ridiculous, but I had uh, Sean check out the local uh, price for a four by eight sheet of seven sixteenths. And he call around to a couple places, basically $50 a sheet for yeah. seven sixteenths OSB, right. uh, which is not a fantastic product to begin with. No. So, you know, it does, it does bring us back to, well, you know, maybe we should, if, lum- if lumber is going to be that ridiculous, Maybe we could do some lead embracing and and some uh, foam board of some variety for some sheathing on the yeah, inside. Yeah, I, I think it's important just from a philosophical standpoint for us to have multiple ways to do uh, any uh, component of construction. Because when when something gets out of hand from a cost or availability standpoint, we've got alternatives to go to. And that's a great example of one that we could do. Yeah, for sure. So let's get back to that 70s house and let's talk about... Uh, Outboard of the two by four. So two by four framing, 16 or 24 on center, lead embracing. And then you mentioned 15 or 30 pound felt. What was on top of that? Generally just masonry or siding. Okay. That was it. In a four by eight sheet of T111, uh, really co- popular in custom homes back then was lap and gap cedar siding. You yeah. see a lot of it still around. You still see a lot of both of those in Austin. In fact, yeah. my house that I just uh, tore down <laughs> to build my new house on the old slab had all T111 on uh, the back of the house, and it had experienced a pretty fair amount of rot. If you're not familiar with the T111, it's basically a 5 eighths plywood probably right. that had a, uh, I don't know how they got the notches in it to, to make it look kind of paneled, but it had some kind of notching paneling look to it. Uh, and sometimes on the horizontal seams, they'd put a Z flashing in there so that you'd get some correct shingling, not always. And usually where there was splashback, there was a fair amount of rot. And in my house that I bought, there was not just a fair amount of rot. It was a ridiculous amount of rot. Right, right. But you know what? Other than that, the house was still very structural, had not fallen down, and was in pretty good shape. What do you what do you attribute that to, Tim? Well, I mean, it, 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 the way we used to frame houses and seal them up, they usually were pretty drafty, and they would dry to the inside and dry to the outside. And so it doesn't hurt lumber to get wet as long as it can dry out quickly. It, but what happens if we encapsulate lumber in some sort of cavity that can't really dry out well and it gets wet, m- mushrooms are going to begin to grow. Oh, let's talk about mushrooms. I have some <laughs> mushroom stories. I bet you do too is your background. My first encounter with mushrooms growing in a house was in the early 2000s. I started my career in Washington, D.C., kind of like you at a national production builder. I moved to Portland, Oregon. And right after I moved there, a builder that I was working for um, had some lawsuits on EFIS houses. And just prior to that, had had some lawsuits on some Masonite houses. Uh, and no disrespect to the Masonite Corporation, but they made siding out of, uh, what is that material? What, what would they call that? A, uh, 
A pre- Par- a press board? Yeah, press yeah. board, particle board. They basically yeah. had a particle board siding. Hardboard, yeah. Hardboard siding that they painted on the outside, and then they put it on houses just like we were talking about with framing. Uh, and no air gap behind that. It would be right on top of tar paper or some house wrap or something. And I saw mushrooms growing out of that siding because it would get wet. It would stay wet. It would kind of mushroom. It would blow out, and then mushrooms would start growing on it. Um Tell me your mushroom story, then I'm going to go to another one of mine. Well, I told you a while ago, I'd spent a year and a half of my building career in a dedicated subdivision repairing balconies that had been supported by paralams, which is basically a, a structural OSB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, meaning, and, meaning it like it was two-thirds in and one-third out cantilevered. Well, they were encapsulated in uh, either EFAS ah, or ooh. some type of uh, stucco application that was not flashed properly. Mm-hmm. But So it would allow water to leak in, but the stucco and its, its moisture barrier would hold it in. And that's what caused it. But as we disassembled some of those things, uh, the it, the wood was like uh, newspaper. Uh, it was black. <laughs> In some cases, we had, uh, I don't even know if you'd call them mushrooms. There's some sort of lichen-looking, large, fluffy-looking thing that's scary. I, wow, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. I've heard uh, David Nicastro say this, and it's one of my favorite quotes. It's not about keeping water out. It's about letting water out. That's right. And that was the big deal with those EFIS facades that I remodeled in the early 2000s was uh, they did not do a perfect, 100% perfect job of keeping the water out, but they did a real good job of not letting the water out when it got in, Right. which meant that, that once the water got in and had nowhere to go, uh, and those houses also had visqueen vapor barriers on the inside, which we also did in Texas a lot in the 90s and right. 2000s. So you couldn't drive either direction. And even if you could drive either direction, there wasn't like there was airflow really through there. So after a mistake that was made, it wouldn't take more than a year or two till you had actual rot and potential structural failures. Right. And uh, that harkens me to another story. We were talking earlier about how those 70s houses were solid lumber, you know, real two-by lumber. Right. I remember one of the very first times I used a structural stud that was not a real two-by. I used LSLs on a project that I'd built. I don't know when this was. Real early when I started the company, like 05, 06, out at the lake Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, a client's house. And it was a real tall porch, outdoor porch. But the porch outside had open screens in it. There was no windows. And so water could blow into the porch. And so these window openings, where there, where there wasn't a window, is going to get screened, had a screen kind of jam made out of redwood. And I wrapped my house wrap in, but did not do a very good job of, of really keeping the water out. So water was able to get in, and I framed it with LSLs. And you could probably guess where this is going. This is an outdoor <laughs> porch. It got wet. It did not let that water out very well. And the client called me after being in the house for, I don't know, two or three years and said, oh, gosh, madam, I'm thinking about listing my house, but all my all my screens on the outside, the redwood looks bad. Can you come take a look at it? So I, I used my handy-dandy rot detector uh, on the porch, a very sensitive instrument, <laughs> and uh, poked it into the redwood. For those of you on the podcast, I pulled my knife out poked it into the redwood and the redwood was was wet but was still pretty structural but right right after it got through the redwood it was one of those 
And then the knife went all the way in and I said, oh, that's bad. No. So uh, I had, uh, at the time, I was using a different frame carpenter that I hadn't wasn't using anymore. I had Bill Wood, our current framer out there, and some of his guys who started pulling apart. And sure enough, there was massive rot and massive damage. And as a company, we paid for all that uh, and replaced it all out of our dime because I totally messed it up. You know, it's interesting you made that comparison between the Redwood and the LSL. And that that's another phase we went through uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s was when Redwood became almost the same price as Cedar. Mm. Cedar got expensive. Redwood stayed about the same. We would use a lot of Redwood for exterior trim mm-hmm. because it has so much tannin in it that it can get wet over and over and over again. For and sure. it, it retards any kind of mold growth or uh bacterial growth inside of it uh it's 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 great but it's just too expensive to do that now and now we have great non-wood products that can do the same thing even better yeah yeah but that was my first experience with lsl framing and you know it was super structural and super straight when i put it in but it made me realize oh i gotta really pay attention to where i use this and make sure i'm putting it in a place that's going to be dry yeah because that that LSL, if it's sitting on your dining room table uh, in your house that's air conditioned, will last for the next thousand years. But if you put that LSL outside on your picnic table, how long will it last? Yeah. Uh, getting rained on and getting beat on. So let's talk about your transition to um, uh, using anything but all solid sawn lumber. When did you start seeing anything uh, like OSB or like LSLs or structural plywoods things or lvls rather things like that on job sites well i think in the late 90s early 2000 um laminated uh beams of different types uh became popular paralams and glue lambs primarily initially then the the lvls the laminated veneer uh became more and more popular and it seems to have settled in as the as the the choice for most engineers to specify. Yeah, LVLs, uh, that is. LVLs, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cost-effective to use. Yeah. Um, as far as framing lumber, we still use a lot of dimensional lumber. We use a fairly high grade of it. We went through a period where we used um, uh, finger-jointed studs. Mm-hmm. They're, they're pretty straight because they're able to use components from uh, better lumber to make them, and they are a little less expensive. But... Uh, in certain applications, they, they don't work as well. Um, but for if we really need a wall that's going to have a lot of critical light, we'll want to use some sort of LSL stud. And I think in one house, we actually used LVL studs mm-hmm. um, because that's what the owner wanted to do. But it yeah. turned out an extremely straight, flat wall. I used LVL studs at my house as well in framing, and it's very, very flat, but they are not easy to work with. No. (laughs) I'm not sure I would do that on a regular basis. There's something to be said about standard dimensional lumber uh, on a house that doesn't have a bunch of critical light and super modern design, that sort of thing. There's something that's uh, awfully uh, nice and comforting about normal lumber. You know how it's going to behave. I will say one one of the biggest things that I've noticed today versus... Not so much 30 years ago, but maybe from lumber we've pulled out from 50 years ago, that the quality of the lumber has deteriorated. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get now lumber from trees that are relatively young trees that are grown really fast and harvested quickly. 
Whereas the lumber that we used to get, although it's certainly not sustainable, was from trees that were mature and uh, had been dried and cared for a lot better in transportation, and therefore they just performed better. Yeah, you try to pull nails out of a out of a piece of lumber that's seventy years old out of a house that's seventy, eighty years old, and they will they won't come out. No, they welded themselves into that hard lumber. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's switch gears on on the lumber side of framing and talk about the people side of framing. Yeah. Talk to me about your framers from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I didn't meet you until 2005 when I moved here. So you had, you had uh, 25, 30 years of building prior to me even meeting you. Uh, talk to me about the framers that you used over the years, what they were like, uh, and, uh, and if you can remember any interesting stories or characters from those years, I'd love to hear it. Well, one of the first houses uh, that I built, as I said, working for Haskell in the late 70s, was uh, these little 13, 14, 1500 square foot, three bedroom, two bath houses. Um, it, we would frame those houses in a day and a half. Um, and they had framing crews that had like eight, uh, eight men. Um, they would show up. They knew exactly what to do, what to cut. Uh, the the roof trusses uh, were already there on site. Wow. And so it would take them a half to three quarters a day to frame all the walls, the balance of the time to put the the uh, roof trusses up, get it decked, get the fascia on. The siding was four by eight sheets of masonite, that hardboard mm-hmm. we were talking about. Yep. Um, so it went very quickly. Um, and they did those one right after the other. Do you remember what the sales cost on those were in 79? Yeah, they were $30,000. 30K. Wow. That included the lot. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, have you ever driven by one of those houses today or any of those they're, still in the original uh, untouched condition? They're still there, but you can't hardly see them for the vehicles up on blocks in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> I always said of the houses I built in the 90s when I was working for that production builder that it was the future slums of America I was building. Yep. Not great houses after 25, 30 years, unfortunately. No. How about framers in the 80s when you started doing more custom projects? Well, I think what happened is those same framing crews that were used to doing volume decided that they could specialize in a more uh, upscale product. Uh, and they just used those same guys, took a little bit more care in their work. Uh, if they were smarter, they could figure out complex geometry, complex architecture, and therefore, they were able to charge a lot more. Um, I think back then we were paying a dollar fifty a square foot or something like that for <laughs> for framing labor, and they made money on it. Wow, that's yeah. crazy! Dollar fifty a square foot yeah. for a two thousand square foot house, basically. Yeah. yeah, that's wild. And then Tim, what what year did you open Tim Hill Builder Inc. That your your home building company? Uh, well. That company wasn't started till '93. Okay, but I worked under another uh, name, Hill Construction, uh, from the early '80s all the way through the uh, early '90s. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Uh, any of those guys that you framed with still around these days? Um, well, there's 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 one framer that turned into a builder. I think he's still around. Um, one of them moved to California. Um, I think. Uh, one of them um, quit or retired, went into a different business. So uh, I'm, I'm sure they're all still around, but I, I don't keep up with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's let's uh, let's give our podcast listeners some advice on framing, finding good frame carpenters, 
bidding frame carpentry work because I think that we're a little unique in the way we do it. Although I think there's also a lot of like-minded builders that operate like us. Will you jump into that a little bit? Yeah, a lot of the architecture that we're given uh, is complex enough that it's almost impossible for a framer to, to pinpoint bid it. And so we um, sit down and we calculate uh, man days to do different uh, parts or phases of the of the construction the framing and and come up with an estimate of what that cost should be mm -hmm. uh, because if if we're forcing a framer to give us a hard bid on a five to seven thousand square foot house that's one of a kind mm -hmm. unique on a difficult site difficult staging that maybe takes some crane operation or some forklift operation to put it up um, then that framer is going to add 20, 30 percent on to protect themselves. Whereas if we let them do it sort of on a cost plus basis, they're professional enough to keep the job moving forward quickly. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, we get the best benefit of that. And I think a lot of custom builders are moving that way. Certainly custom builders that are in the cost plus world that we are. I think the fixed price builders uh, or maybe someone watching this who's an owner builder, you know, planning on building their house and being a general contractor themselves. That's a really hard model for them to uh, to wrap their heads around. Right. But for us doing houses that are one of a kind, that are unique, that are complicated, I honestly can't imagine doing it any other way. And the same goes for our remodels. We often do whole house remodel projects where a lot of complex framing, a lot of, gosh, how are we going to do this? We're not totally sure what this is going to look like once we start pulling it apart. I can't imagine uh, having anybody try and hard bid that without either losing their shirt uh, and losing a lot of money on the project or B, putting such a big buffer in it that they're going to make a ton of money on the project. Yeah. And it, it, it seems like the more complex the architecture is, the more the architect wants to morph the house as it goes up. So mm -hmm. what the scope might have been in the original design phase is probably not the, the, the same scope as it was when the framing is finished. Yeah, it's, sure. it's somewhat of a different house because architects like the design as the, as the project goes. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, another thing I think that's changed, this is a little on topic, but slightly off what I originally said. Besides the, the labor and the materials, I think another thing, another thing that's really changed for us, Tim, even just in the last five, 10 years that I've worked with you, is you've been really smart about utilizing uh, equipment to make the job go smoother. So, for instance, I don't think before I met you, we had a rental line item uh, on our budgets. And you've been really, really smart about saying, okay, a SkyTrack would be really helpful on this job for these two or three phases. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the SkyTrack, how do you explain what a SkyTrack is? Well, a SkyTrack is a forklift that is set on a tractor frame. So it can it can move about a rough job site much easier, and it has a telescoping fork. Mm -hmm. Telehandler. So it can, yeah, it can reach up to, uh, a, a, you know, 20, 30-foot height, um, uh, 30 feet away from them. So not only can it go up, but it can go out as well. What other rental equipment are, are uh, have we been or are we in the future using on job sites to make that framing easier? Well, we just put in a 1,200-pound I-beam on a job. And there's no way even an eight-man crew could do that. Mm -mm. So we had to rent two uh, hoists. Uh, they're cable-operated genie hoists mm -hmm. that roll around. You get them in place, get the beam up on them, and then you 
crank them up to where the beam gets in place and you just roll them up uh, to where the beam sets. Yep. And and that's it. And those are fairly inexpensive. Um, it, it's, it's not so much just the, uh, keeping the job moving forward, uh, but it's also a safety feature as well. Yeah. People getting hurt on the job. So you have to have the equipment there that allows them to do their job safely. Yep. Um, I think the homeowner gets the benefit of the job moving quicker. Uh, everyone gets the benefit of, of nobody getting hurt. Yeah, and another another rental item that uh, we we've got on a job now that I don't think we've rented before is a scissor lift. Uh, have you used this a lot over the years? No, I really haven't. Then, uh, and the reason is that they work pretty well in a very open, large ceiling house where you have lots of high work to do mm-hmm. on a smooth slab. Uh, but it, you have to have the slab in place and be able to maneuver inside on a on a flat. Uh, foundation surface for them to work well. Um, I think they probably do make them that'll work uh, on uneven terrain. Mm-hmm. Genie probably makes them all all terrain scissor lifts, um, but our sites are so limited and the and the areas uh, around the house are so small. We have to do everything off scaffolding. Yeah, yeah, we use a lot of scaffolding, and we actually own quite a bit of scaffolding. Right both traditional scaffolding and what I've always called Baker scaffolding. I don't know, I don't know how that term came about, but it's a smaller scaffolding usually used indoors. Right. Uh, and made to fit through doorways. Oh, is that, is that how they got the name? Right. Okay. I didn't realize that. I don't know that the name came there, but I mean, it's, it's it's small enough that it'll fit through a traditional three foot by seven foot door. Yeah. That makes sense. Less expensive, but super, super helpful. I've got, uh, the finished carpenters up on some scaffolding at my house right now, working on my hidden door for my ceiling. Right. And man, that's a super handy piece of equipment. It is. It is. Super handy. Uh, Tim, talk to me about um, tools or other things that you have handy uh, on your truck when you know you've got a house in the framing stage uh, or even job site. So that could be supplies or tools, things that you uh, are thinking, okay, we're coming into the framing phase. I need to make sure that I'm, I've got this or this to be prepared. Well, um, I, I generally carry just a few odds and ends like joist hanger nails or timber lock screws or just a few things that the framer might run out of that I don't want to have to drive all the way across town to pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly caulking guns or uh, roller applicators for putting on uh, weather barriers, those type things are just supplies yeah i do carry a compressor small nail gun uh, and you know traditional hand tools but uh i don't know that that would be helpful to the framer as much as it is when when it comes to punching something out some of our guys that might do some frame punch it might help them yeah some pickup work that sort of thing and as we're thinking about that i was thinking you know I think it's a little unique in in some of the functions that we have our framers do. You know, normally when you talk about framing, you think structural framing. Uh, but our frame carpenters are also doing weatherization. Right. You know, back in the day, that was house wrap. But these days, it's more like whatever peel and stick product or maybe fluid applied we're using. Or if we're using zip system sheathing, they're applying all the tape. We're typically having our framers, although we're varying this on on a current job, we're typically having them set all the fenestrations, all the windows and doors on the outside of the house as well. And then most of the time, our frame carpenters are doing what I've always called cornice, which is your exterior trim, your exterior siding, that sort of thing. Do you think that's pretty standard around the rest of the country, or or are those other trade specialties? Uh, 
I don't know so much about other markets. We used to have two separate crews. We had a framing crew and a cornice crew mm-hmm. for years. Uh, they they specialized in that. Uh, but now it seems like most framing crews, especially in custom homes, can do all of that. Um, our particular framer has developed a system of uh, uh, weatherization that is second to none. I mean, I, I really not only like the products that we use, but the application. Those guys can wrap Christmas presents like they're coming from Neiman Marcus. Yeah, no doubt. With with uh, peel and stick products. Yeah, we're using that Polywalt Luma Flash right. uh, most of the time, and we're often putting it on uh, CDX, five-eighths, sometimes three-quarters, sometimes half. And, man, they do an amazing job. They, they put do. primer on. They peel off that backer. They stick it. There's hardly any wrinkles. Uh, and then they're using uh, fluid applied. They're blue, Polywall's blue barrier on the seams and transitions and windows. And they just do an amazing job. They do. And for me, I think that's that's been uh, one huge key to our success over the years uh, is having crews continually on the job. Uh, an example from a long time ago. Do you remember, um, gosh, what house was it? I remember the, the very first house that one of Bill's guys started on um, uh, was a house that we did on the lake that had all that shishugi bond on mm-hmm. it. And, uh, and this guy was fairly new to the crew. Great guy. I could tell he was, he was eager to learn, but he was really green. And that same guy today is, you know, 10 years older uh, one of the best framers, I think, in Texas, and he's been on the crew 10 years. And so by using that same frame carpenter, Bill and his guys, when we show them how to do things and we go, oh, we want to do this just like we did the house two houses ago. Remember that one that was on the lake that had the black shishugi bond that had the, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally remember that. Well, this house has a similar side in detail. We want to do that same thing. There's that built-in team memory. It's almost like uh, intellectual property. Right. I mean, totally. We developed it and uh, it has value when you do it over and over again. It's yeah. huge. I mean, think about if a football team had a different punter, a different wide receiver and a different quarterback every game. How how well do you think they do in the playoffs? Not very well because they're not used to playing together. Uh, and each one of those players has an independent contract, right, with uh, with the team, with the Steelers, my favorite team. But if you're out there on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis – same quarterback, same guy who's uh, you know playing all those different roles. I think that makes such a huge difference in our business, and we try to do that across the trades too. We uh, we try to keep at least an A team electrician, plumber, uh, drywall guy, painter. Sometimes we have two or three, depending on the phase, to make sure that we have enough to cover our work. But having those same trades over and over not bidding that out to multiple bidders to try and get a 10% lower price or whatever it is. That makes a huge difference. And I think that also has helped us really maintain fairly even pricing. Uh, you know, if I think about some of our trades, their pricing is not r- substantially different from five years ago. No, certainly they've gone up some, but I don't think there's any trade that I can think of that were 30, 40, 50% more than we were five years ago. We're, we have consistent people that do a good job. None of them are driving Cadillacs uh, on the weekends. They're they're all living comfortably, and that's great. We want people to have a good living. But having those same people over and over makes a huge difference. And it all starts with foundation and framing. That's right. For sure. Tim, really appreciate your time, brother. Always, always good Thank to you, talk man. to you. This is a conversation we could have 
uh, all the time and uh, fun to be able to have it with these guys in the audience. So huge thanks to Tim for joining us. Guys, if you're not currently a subscriber to the Build Show podcast, we're publishing this every single Friday over at buildshownetwork.com where you can watch this if you're interested in watching the version. We're also on iTunes and all the other kind of major players. I want to say a huge thanks to Builders First Source uh, for taking the time and being willing to sponsor this podcast. Uh, you know, it takes me, a, I have a very large team of people behind the scenes that are producing the content, that are doing things that like Alex on the switchboard back here, he spent two hours getting the lights and the cameras and the audio set up and tracking down all the bells and hums and whistles. And without Builders First Source to sponsor this, I would not have the ability to do this and to share this wisdom of Tim and I from our combined 60 years of construction. So I want to say thanks to Builders First Source and also thanks to all the uh, people on my team, which is my company, Build Productions, behind the scenes that allows me to share this wisdom. You know, it's, it's my passion to share with you my wisdom because I've made a lot of mistakes over the years. I've had unhappy clients. I've had rotten mold. <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. And so for me to take the time with another wise builder like Tim and share this with you and do it in a format for me, that's always, uh, it's been important for me to always make this free and available. Uh, so I appreciate these sponsors uh, taking the time and, and the money to allow me to take my time and share this with you. So big thanks to Builders First Source. Guys, if you're not currently a subscriber, hit that subscribe button below. We've got new content here on every Friday. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the Build Show Podcast. <laughs>